Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for any inkling of self-righteous or law effort that abides still in our hearts as the as any kind of thought or grounds upon which we approach you and so father i pray we see the apostolic gospel, that there was one and that it concerned Christ and Christ alone and that we would hold rigidly to it and not compromise and that we would be used of you to preserve it so that others might come to know you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Liberal theology has pitted Peter against Paul. It's pitted Jesus against Paul. It's even put Paul against Paul. Even many evangelical Christians wonder if there's something of a tension between James and Paul. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 
that foundation has no seams or cracks. Neither have the years of church history resulted in settling, removing differences that lie between the smooth surface. The great edifice of Rome now lies in ruins, but that foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament endures unscathed. The apostles together form one solid foundation, perfectly square with the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And this is because the foundation that they laid is Christ. The apostles didn't lay the foundation of Christ's, but the Christ. They didn't put forward gospels, but the gospel. And so whereas in 1, 10 through 24, Paul demonstrates that the gospel he preaches didn't come from men or through men, now in 2, 1 through 10, he demonstrates that the gospel he preached was in perfect unity with the gospel preached by the other apostles. There may be multiple apostles, but there is one gospel. For they're all called by Christ as messengers of Christ to declare Christ. And so the one-two knockout punch that Paul is delivering in the early part of this letter is that the gospel he preaches was not one that he got from Jerusalem to then pervert, but one that he took to Jerusalem that they recognized. So in chapter 1, he shows it's not one that he got from Jerusalem and then perverted, twisted, distorted. But rather, in chapter 2, he's showing us it's one that he later took to Jerusalem. And they recognized it as the very gospel they preached. He says 14 years later, I believe this is dated from his conversion, 14 years after his conversion, he returns to Jerusalem the second time since his conversion. And so this is emphasizing that the gospel he preached, remember he didn't spend any substantial amount of time in Jerusalem. It was three years after he was converted and then he was only there for two weeks and he only spoke to James and Peter. And so now it's 14 years later. He's been preaching the gospel that he preaches for 14 years before he spends any substantial amount of time in Jerusalem. Now, some have speculated that this visit is identical to what we have in Acts chapter 15, known as the Jerusalem Council. I don't think that's so for several reasons. Foremost, you never see Paul appeal to some kind of official position that was taken by the church against the Galatian false teachers. If, if that had already been done, it would be a death knell to their attempts. No such approach is taken here. Further, the Jerusalem Council was a public gathering, whereas Paul says this was a private one in verse 2. He set before them, it was a private meeting before those who seemed influential. Here, Paul makes it clear he goes up because of a revelation, verse 2. In Acts 15, he is sent by the church at Antioch. 
But most important, if this is the Jerusalem council, it means that Paul is leaving out an earlier visit that he made to Jerusalem. And that would be devastating for his argument that he's making here. That earlier visit is recorded in Acts 11, 27 through 30. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And to make it clear that that happened, Acts 12.25 says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so it's my, art, my belief that this visit here is that visit. That Acts 11.27-30 gives you the setting for Galatians chapter 2. Now that's, and, and I'll, I'll make that a bit more clear later on, but that's when this happened. Now for the who. He went with Barnabas taking Titus. This is the Barnabas, you remember, who sold that field and gave the proceeds to the early church to help those who were in need, Acts chapter 4. It was Barnabas who, whenever Paul came to Jerusalem the first time, brought him before the apostles, brought him before Peter and James, and testified to his ministry, Acts 9.27. In Acts 11, we read that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You learned so much of Barnabas there. He's so entrusted by the church at Jerusalem that he sent to Antioch upon them hearing of these Hellenistic Jews turning to Christ. And then he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul, Paul, bring him there. And, and in this account, he's spoken of this of as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Later, after the events that we're reading of in chapter 2 of Galatians, it was Barnabas who, whenever they returned to Antioch, would be sent with Paul by Antioch on that first missionary journey. And also with Paul was Titus. Later we see Titus acting as an apostolic delegate, acting 
as Paul's representative. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. I think it's clear the idea is that Titus is delivering that letter. And he delivers it as though he is Paul himself in in representation before them, giving the idea, the the concepts, the, the intent of Paul in that letter, explaining it more fully to them. Like Timothy and others we see in the New Testament, he is sent forth by Paul and acting on Paul's behalf. In the letter bearing his name, Paul tells Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see him acting under the apostle with his authority in these ways. But all that's yet to be at this point. None of that's occurred yet. Why is Paul taking Titus with him? You notice this, that he went with Barnabas. Back to Acts chapter 11, the church at Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas. So Paul goes with Barnabas, but he takes Titus. Why does he take him? He takes him the way that one might take an umbrella on a rainy day. The purpose of why he brought Titus along will be made clear in just a bit. But first, why was Paul going to Jerusalem? Verse 2, he went up because of a revelation. First, there's a revelation. This could be the revelation that Agabus received concerning that famine that then resulted in the church at Antioch sending, he and Paul, sending Paul and Barnabas. Could be. I happen to think that coinciding along with that, that as the church is saying we're wanting to send Paul and Barnabas, that Paul is receiving a revelation of something in particular he's to do. On this visit. And second, in obedience to this revelation, he is going to set before those who seemed influential the gospel he proclaims to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. Now, here's a place where context is really important to get at precisely what Paul intends here. I don't think anything in this passage, anything that Paul has said up to this point, should cause us to think that Paul, when he says, I want to make sure that I had not run or wasn't running in vain. Nothing should cause us to believe that Paul doubts his apostleship or the gospel. What does he mean then that he wants to go there and set before them the gospel so as to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain? I find help in verse 5. There you're told that he was not yielding to anyone so that the gospel might be preserved. For others, for the Gentiles, for the Galatians. You see, if another gospel was being tolerated, propagated, proclaimed at at Jerusalem, it would run counter to everything his ministry is about. And so he wants to make sure, am I doing this in vain at Antioch? Is there something being done over here? that's going to run contrary and undermine my efforts. And so for the sake of the gospel and establishing the unity of the apostolic gospel, Paul 
sets the gospel he preaches before those who seemed to be influential. Verse 2. Who are these persons? He mentions, again, mentions them again in verse 6. From those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. But finally, in verse 9, their identity becomes clear. James, Cephas, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars. Now, is Paul being derogatory in this? He's not belittling the apostles as such. He's speaking against those who would so esteem one apostle as to be superior to another. A kind of hero worship that doesn't look at the office and the content of the gospel, but just at the person. I think this is really similar to what Paul was dealing with in Corinth whenever he told them in his first letter, chapter 1, 11 through 13 to that church. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? John Stott comments, they, the false teachers, were trying to disrupt the unity of the apostolic circle. They were openly alleging that the apostles contradicted one another. Their game, we might say, was not robbing Peter to pay Paul, but exalting Peter to spite Paul. It's that which Paul mocks here. You see, this all goes back to 1.8 where he says, even if we should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It doesn't matter who the person is. Don't think, well, this must be attached to Peter or this must be attached to James, therefore it's true. He's saying, if there's any other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ, let that person be accursed. It doesn't matter who that person is because who is not as important as what. And that's demonstrated in the verses following whenever, Peter, whenever Paul rebukes Peter when his conduct is not in keeping with the gospel. Because who is not as important as what? It doesn't matter that it's Peter who's doing it. Because the gospel is at stake. You see, in that instance, the, the pressure of who these people were was so much that he tells us that even Barnabas 2.13 was led astray by their hypocrisy. It's that that Paul is countering whenever he says, who they are made no difference to me. God shows no partiality. And so Paul, having set before James and Peter and John the gospel that he preaches, he, with this, forces the apostolic gospel, the unity thereof, to be demonstrated in two ways. And the first is that Titus, verse 3, wasn't forced to be circumcised. Now you see why Paul brought Titus to serve as exhibit A for the gospel. Paul, with this, also gives great light into the heresy that's being propagated at the Galatian churches. 
You remember he's spoken of his former life, this life that was a life in Judaism where he was advancing among all his peers. It was a life of people-pleasing. And he was pleasing people and he was arising in esteem. He was climbing the ladder. This life in Judaism, this life according to the law. And now he's speaking of circumcision here, that he wasn't forced to be circumcised. And it makes it clear, this early point, that the heresy regards the law as how it relates to our standing before God. They were saying that circumcision and some degree of law keeping were necessary for one to be justified. Soon, Paul will write in chapter 2, verse 15 through 16, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In 5.6, he says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In 5.11 through 12, he ties this into man-pleasing. He says, if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? The idea is that whenever you, you're preaching this kind of law means you don't, there's no persecution, you're pleasing man. He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Again, you see, Paul is not concerned about pleasing men. In 6, 13 through 14, he exposes that it's the false teachers who don't want to obey God, but please men. He said, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. It's this very heresy that as it arrived in force at Antioch, would result in the Jerusalem council, as we read in Acts 15.1, some men came down from Judea, no doubt connected in some way to these false brothers. They come down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's important to realize that these false brothers were not just perverting the gospel, they were perverting the law. In Romans 4.11, Paul explains that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision never justified. Rather, it served as a sign and a seal that, of the standing one had before God by faith and faith alone. So, Exhibit A of Titus all by itself destroys the argument, the theology of these false brothers. But that's never enough. And so, Paul goes on to make his argument thorough. Titus wasn't circumcised even though these false brothers tried to bring them back into slavery. And the, the, the tactic 
that these false teachers, these false brothers used then is the same one they use today. You see, they slipped in, and then they spied out, and then they enslaved. They slipped in, they infiltrate, and they distort the gospel from inside the church, as we saw in verse 7 of chapter 1. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They've come from within. This is the very tactic that theological liberals used in the early 20th century. It's the reason why once stalwart denominations like the PC, once stalwart, like the PCUSA, or once steadfast institutions like Princeton, fell. The damage was done not by secular humanists without, but by false brothers slipping in, spying out, and enslaving. The champion of orthodoxy in that era, J. Gresham Machen, saw Galatians being replayed. In his classic Christianity and liberalism, he observes, what was the difference between the teaching of Paul and the teaching of the Judaizers? What was it that gave rise to the stupendous polemic of the epistle to the Galatians? To the modern church, the difference would have seemed a mere theological subtlety. About many things, the Judaizers were in perfect harmony with Paul. The Judaizers believed that Jesus was the Messiah. There was not a shadow of evidence that they objected to Paul's lofty view of the person of Christ. Without the slightest doubt, they believed that Jesus had really risen from the dead. They believed, moreover, that faith in Christ was necessary to salvation. But the trouble was, they believed that something else was also necessary. They believed that what Christ had done needed to be pieced out by the believer's own effort to keep the law. From the modern point of view, the difference would have seemed to be very slight. He goes on to say exactly what the difference between Christianity and liberalism, Christianity and this heresy too as well are. He says, here's the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood. That means it comes across as a command. It's altogether in the imperative mood while Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative, a declaration. Liberalism appeals to man's will while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. It's not good advice from Christ. It's the good news of Christ. And so the false teacher, as in Machen's day, as in this day, no doubt, will draw much attention to all that we have in common, all that we both believe, and at the same time attack the very heart of the gospel. And it's in this way, verse 4, that freedom is exchanged for slavery. It is the slavery of law-keeping in some effort of self-righteousness. In contrast to the freedom of being counted righteous in Christ by faith alone. The slavery puts one under the curse. 3 and verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
But freedom is found in Christ because Christ, 3.13, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So you see, these false brothers have slipped onto the playing field where they will have the best possible advantage. If ever their message was to find a receptive audience, this is the place in the heartland of Judaism among those who love the law, and they bring their best effort on this opportune place at this, their best time before the Jerusalem council, and they lose. And they lose because Paul refused to yield for even a moment. He says, we refused. I I believe that's Paul and Barnabas, but by implication it means no one. Among the leadership, among those who seemed influential and Barnabas and Paul with them, no one yielded on this point. True unity was preserved by a fight. A fight over doctrine. A fight for doctrine. Yes, doctrine divides. False doctrine. Elsewhere, Paul warns. Romans. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Let us say with Luther, here we intend and are obliged to be rebellious and stubborn with them, for otherwise we would lose the truth of the gospel. It is not love for others that compromises on this point, but love of self. It is not God-pleasing, but people-pleasing that waffles in such a fight. Luther goes on to beautifully rant, On no account should we humble ourselves here, for they want to deprive us of our glory. Namely, the God who has created us and given us everything, and Christ who has redeemed us with His blood. In short, we can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else, but we will not let ourselves be deprived of the gospel, our faith in Jesus Christ. And that is that. Accursed be any humility that yields or submits at this point. Rather, let everyone be proud and unremitting here unless he wants to deny Christ. With the help of God, therefore, I will be more hard-headed than anyone else. I want to be stubborn and and to be known as someone who is stubborn. Here I bear the inscription, I yield to no one. And I am overjoyed if here I am called rebellious and unyielding. Here I admit openly and I am and will be, that I am and will be unmovable and that I will not yield a hairbreadth to anyone. If that is sinning, it's sinning in the right direction. Better a unyielding pride on this point than a faux humility that is altogether sin. May God grant us the unyielding spirit of Luther and Paul at this point. Because if we do not have it, we are accursed and the gospel is not preserved for others.
that we might pass it on to them. Now, the second demonstration of the apostolic unity is seen that in the face of these false teachers, that while Paul didn't yield, Timothy, uh, Titus is not circumcised. The apostles, those who seemed influential, James and Peter and John, didn't add, but rather recognized. They checked the math. They added nothing, and they saw the same gospel equation in common with Paul. If the false brothers are adding to the gospel, it's made clear that, verse 6, the apostles are not adding anything to the gospel. If you want to add to the gospel, you exchange freedom for slavery. You turn good news into bad news. Whenever it comes to the grounds upon which you hope to stand righteous before God, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you're trusting in anything more, know that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you add to Jesus, you lose Jesus. The apostles added nothing but rather recognized Paul's apostolic ministry. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, they, they see this. And it's not that they're seeing two different gospels, one to the Gentiles, one to the Jews. They're seeing the same gospel being ministered distinctly to Jews by one and distinctly to Gentiles by the other. Two different spheres of ministry are in focus. Phil Riken comments, the church can allow diversity of mission only where there is unity of message. They're seeing the same gospel, but a different emphasis of ministry. And what's being recognized here is not that simply Paul focuses on the Gentiles, whereas Peter focuses on the Gentiles. They're recognizing a distinct apostolic ministry. Verse 8. He who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine. My what? My apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. In Romans eleven thirteen, Paul refers to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. He impacts that in chapter 15 of Romans, saying on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. This is what Paul is referring to when he says that they perceived the grace that was given to me. This grace that was given to be a minister, an apostle to the Gentiles. He impacts what that grace looked like in priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have every reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, Romans 15. 15 through 18. 
That's the grace they perceived in Paul. And seeing it, they added nothing but extend to him the right hand of fellowship, showing that they are in perfect agreement with Paul. They only ask that Paul remember the poor. The very thing he says, I was eager to do because that's why he was sent to Jerusalem. And whenever they, they say this, you note that they're not adding to the gospel. They've added nothing. This is not a demand. This is a request. And how powerfully beautiful of our providential father that he arranged it such that the early destitute church in Jerusalem would look to their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ for aid through this time so that it might be more fully manifest that there is one gospel to both Jew and Greek. This support of the destitute Jerusalem church would be a theme of Paul's ministry. He writes to the church at Rome, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, one gospel, the Gentiles share in their blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Paul mentions this ministry in both of his letters to the Corinthians, but in the first one, we see that the churches of Galatia were a part of this. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, it's important to remember that the point of all of this, again, is not autobiography, but apostolicity. The point is the veracity of Paul's apostleship and thus the truthfulness of his gospel. And I pray that you haven't grown tired of this emphasis in this letter so soon. John Stott warns, some people who read these pages will no doubt be tempted to be impatient. It seems to them no more than a complicated rigmarole, a visit of Paul to Jerusalem in the first century AD, the question of whether Titus was circumcised or not, a consultation between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles. It all appears very remote and quite unrelated to the 20th century problems. But this is not so. May we be anchored anew and again and again every time the gospel is proclaimed to this one foundation of the church. May we grow more and more unyielding every time it's proclaimed and more zealous for this gospel. 
may we rejoice that Paul didn't yield so that the gospel was preserved for the Galatian churches, for the Gentiles. May we rejoice at the faithful churches and saints who did not yield at this point so that the gospel might come to us. And may we not yield so that we might preserve it for others. In the name of Christ, and Christ alone be lifted high. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks not to what we want first, but to what we need. And oh, how we need your gospel. And thank you that your apostles laid that foundation. Father, may we appreciate it and may we anchor ourselves to it. And no other. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.